Treehouse products are crafted to bring you the best that legal, delivered-to-your-door THC has to offer. Treehouse utilizes unique blends of carefully selected minor cannabinoids that get you lit in ways you've only ever dreamed of. From Delta 8 vape pens with innovative blends of Delta 9 and THCP, to the tastiest HHC-infused syrups and hemp flower pre-rolls on the planet, Treehouse has got you covered. Ready to delight in dank gummies and puff-powerful vapes? Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. There's only one E, not two, in treehouse.com. When you go there, get 30% off your order and a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll. You can use the coupon code GENIUS. That's G-E-N-I-U-S. This offer expires August 31st, 2023. Grab your goodies and meet us for some fun in the treehouse. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dr. Leo Garland, uh, he's the author of The Allergy Solution, and uh, he works on gastrointestinal dysregulation, which we'll get into. So uh, welcome, Leo. Thanks for coming. It's great to be talking with you. Well, tell me a bit about your uh, background. What got you into uh, caring about digestion and uh, and all the topics you currently... I've been a, a practicing internist for a few decades, actually. And um, early on in my career, I realized that there were a lot of, there were a lot of problems that were not being solved by the tools I had been given during my training. And so I set out to try and understand what what's the nature of these common problems uh, for which there are no, not really satisfactory treatments. There may be treatments that suppress symptoms. They don't really get to the root of the problem. And uh, why is this happening? And are there ways that I can problem solve to come up with creative and innovative solutions? And so I can go, I've been following that path for about 40 years now. And I was particularly interested in three, four factors, I would say, that emerged. Uh, and what I did was I, I, would go to the, I would go to the scientific literature. I would, I would read the research literature and then figure out how to apply it in my clinical practice. What was amazing to me was there was so much science behind these areas and yet, none of it had really crossed over into the conventional practice of medicine. The areas. Oh, what, what, what's an example of that? Yeah, well, the areas include nutrition. They include kind of the body mind connection or mind body connection. Um, and I actually did some training in behavioral medicine and environmental health. And there, this has changed somewhat over time, but there is still very little attention paid to the impact of diet patterns of exercise and environmental factors in many conditions. Let's just take cardiovascular disease, for example, and heart attacks. Um, you know, they're viewed as this is, I mean, diet has kind of gotten some attention, but very, really limited 
attention. That's viewed as being a manifestation of blood flow and cholesterol. As I've described in some of my writing, there are environmental influences on the risk. If we take COVID-19, for example, which actually, yeah, th this is actually really important research that's been done over during the pandemic, that a person's dietary pattern has a significant impact on the likelihood that they will get severe COVID versus mild COVID. A study done of healthcare professionals in six countries, looking at their diet in the year preceding illness, retrospectively using standardized and validated questionnaires, and then looking at the outcome of COVID. These were all people who had survived. But well, um, this um, diet, you think that's doing it, or is it the uh, resulting microbial uh, changes, you know, the microbiology? It's both. it's both. And in terms of the microbiome, I started to realize that a lot of the effects of nutrition on health were mediated through the relationship between food and nutrients and the microbes in your gut. And so going back at least 30 years, I began studying that connection. Before there was a term microbiome that was out there, these were just gut organisms. And I did a lot of work in the concept that came to be called leaky gut, which not a term that I particularly like, but it refers to a breakdown in the barrier function of the intestinal tract. And so you ask me, am I a researcher? Or am I a clinician? I'm basically a clinician, but I, I would view myself as a kind of translational clinician. That is, I spend a lot of time looking at basic scientific research and then well, trying to figure out how to apply that to the patients that I'm seeing in the office. Yeah, no, no, that's great. Uh, like you said earlier, a lot of the stuff you were finding, there was no mention of it in clinical practice. So the fact that you look probably sadly means a lot of doctors don't look. And the fact that you look will give you new ideas and ways to treat people. And you can correlate you know, what you're seeing in patients clinically with uh, what the research is saying. So yeah, that's, that's good right. that you and, do that. You know, maybe, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago, a patient of mine said, well, my gastroenterologist said to me, there's no such thing as a leaky gut. Well, 10 years after that, there were articles in major medical journals, the New England Journal of Medicine, using that term, leaky gut. And so there has been, I would say, a, a lot of the focus of my um, research in reviewing the scientific literature and then applying it over the past 15 or 20 years has been focused on the gut microbiome, which is the collection of all the microbes living in the human GI tract. And, I, and with that, I include the mouth, from mouth all the way through. And the interactions between those microbes and our metabolism, our genes, and, and also at our immune system. And about two-thirds of the immune cells that we have are located in the lining of the small intestine. And they don't stay there. They travel from there to various organs, some of them come from these organs to the small intestine and then go back. It's kind of like, this is their school. This is where they get trained. And, and there's a major impact of the nature of the microbes growing there and the way our immune system works. Well, the only thing that keeps you alive for you know, 80, 90 years is what you, what you drink, what you breathe. But somehow, a lot of science says, ah, it's not important you know, until recently, which I find crazy. 
So uh, un- undoubtedly, diet is a monstrous component to our major component of you know, what happens to us. I wanted to ask you a question. Uh, epigenetically, has anyone studied what happens before and after someone eats a meal? You know, how much epigenetic change is there, and is there anything to be learned from that? Oh, there's a lot to be learned from it. I don't know if that's been studied exactly the way you asked the question, like before and after a meal, uh, especially in humans. But one of the most important substances produced by the gut microbiome is a volatile short-chain fatty acid called butyrate or butyric acid. Now, volatile means that it evaporates, goes right through membrane membranes. It's a fatty acid, so it's something that's soluble in fat. And the short chain means it's very small. It actually has only four carbon atoms in it, which is what makes it volatile. So butyrate is produced in the large intestine by the activity of a number of different types of bacteria that are present. And most of these are considered beneficial bacteria. In the large intestine, butyrate acts, first of all, to nourish the cells that line the large intestine. About 70% of the energy generated there to support cellular life comes from the oxidation of the butyrate. Uh, It also has anti-inflammatory effects and anti-cancer effects, and it helps the repair of damaged cells. Now, that butyrate is absorbed into the body, and it travels throughout your body. It even gets into your brain. One of the effects of butyrate is a direct effect on epigenetics. And this is a little, this term is a little complicated, but it, butyrate is what is called a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Now, histones are proteins that surround the DNA in your cells, and they regulate the way DNA expresses itself because your genes are, most of your genes are silent much of the time, and then they get activated. Acetylation is a way of activating genes. Deacetylation, it activates genes. And I mean, this is a triple negative, maybe, but the butyrate inhibits the deacetylation. So in the case of brain injury, and this has been studied quite thoroughly in laboratories, in the case of brain injury, butyrate enhances the repair of the brain and the recovery by allowing genes that are involved in brain repair and recovery to get turned on. And I would say that is That's probably the most studied direct link between the gut microbiome uh, and epigenetics. Treehouse Live Rosin Liquid Diamond Vape Pens combine the impressive taste and potency of live rosin extract with the power of liquid THC diamonds to bring you an unrivaled buzz and mouth-watering flavor profile. If you like getting lit, head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E.com. One E, not two. When you go there, take your vape game up to new heights. Enjoy 30% off your order and get a free Acapulco Gold HHC pre-roll when you use coupon code GENIUS. Again, that's G-E-N-I-U-S. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. Treehouse, the best that legal, delivered to your door, THC has to offer. So which bacteria are the most efficient or best producers of butyrates, and then what are their favorite foods? Well, there are a number of them. Probably the the main one is not available as a probiotic, and its name is a little would be hard for most people to learn. It's called Fecalobacterium prasnitzi, and this is what's called a keystone species. 
in that its presence and its activity supports a lot of the activity of bacterial communities in in the in the gut. Uh, you know, just as a keystone holds an arch together, keystone species hold bacterial communities together. And butyrate uh, supports the growth of bifidobacteria, which most people know about because that, that is available as probiotics. And there's a reciprocal and synergistic relationship between fecalobacterium prasnitzi and uh, bifidobacteria. Now, generally, what, what F. prasnitzi likes and the other butyrate producers like are poorly digested carbohydrates. That is, sugar doesn't do them any good. You just digest and absorb that. But the more complex sugars that are not readily absorbed are, they get down to where the bacteria are, and then the bat, they feed those bacteria. So resistant starch, which is found in a number of starchy vegetables, that F. prasnitzi really likes that and those kinds of foods. Yeah, high fiber, like a, high fiber diets, basically. Right. How much do the, you know, people are trying to take probiotics to actively seed their guts, but it seems like the uh, the best way is, uh, you know, like if you build it, they will come. Instead, if you feed it, they will come. So if you have the right uh, materials that are released in the right part of the digestive tract, it should naturally attract and help grow the community of the right bacteria that you want. It's, well, it, it may work that way. But, theory I just made up. It may work that way, but it's the situation is more complicated than that because sometimes the food, what you're feeding back the bacteria that you want to be active may also feed bacteria that you don't want to be active. And even though there is this concept that prebiotics can feed, you can direct prebiotic foods at bacterial species that you can, that you want to grow. It doesn't really, it's not that simple. And as far as taking probiotics goes, there are two issues. There are a couple of issues with probiotics. One is that the strain of the probiotic is very important. It's not just the species. So probiotic bacteria can are characterized in several ways, the way that all living organisms are, um, or most living organisms. Generally, there's a genus like Lactobacillus or Bifidobacterium, and then there's a species, like it could be Acidophilus or Bifidobacterium infantis. That's not enough. The specific strain within that species, different strains can have different effects. So, and, and merely putting in bifidobacterium lactobacilli, they might, may not even grow. I see that very often. They just can't get into the niche. You're putting them in, but they're not metabolically active. So sometimes you have to create space for them. There are some... Besides like broad spectrum antibiotics, what, what if you had a phage that particularly targeted, let's say you have like Clostridium difficile, Difficile, I can't even pronounce it right. But let's say you had that. You C. diff. We'll just call it C. diff. Yeah, C. diff. What if you found a phage that uh, naturally predates on C. diff? You took that along with prebiotic and probiotic to give you know a helping hand to the new species that you'd rather have there than from when C. diff took over. What if that, um, would that work? Bacteriophages might be the future of microbiome work. Uh, there are about 30 times as many Bacteriophages are viruses that basically go into the bacteria. Now, some of them, the name bacteriophage means it eats bacteria. Some of them do eat the bacteria, that is, they kill the bacteria. But some of them live with the bacteria 
and learn to change bacterial function. And it's even possible that the bacteria are finding ways to change the activity of the phages. I mean, that's so, so the level of complexity, looking at the microbiome on its own without the, the viruses, the bacteriophages, is like rocket science meets quantum physics. The level of complexity that's introduced when you start looking at the effect of these viruses on the, whole, on the structure and function of these multiple communities in your gut, that's, we don't have enough information to know what to do. But I do think that targeted phages, phage therapeutics, are part of the future of medicine, but we're not there. We're not quite there yet. Now, the oh, so what? We're one place where we are is we have probiotics. Now, there are some probiotics that come into the system, and they really alter the dynamics of the whole system. I and and they create space for other other organisms, not just themselves. I call these. I, I coined the term for this Alexander organisms. Alexander the Great, you know, conquered much as the known world at the time, but he didn't do it. I mean, he was just uh, the general whose troops did. He, of course, he couldn't have done it without them, without the Macedonian army, but they were unlikely to have done it without him. So it was his leadership and his skills that enabled that to happen. Well, there are, there are probiotics that have that characteristic. Uh, they don't actually take over the whole gut. But they, they start to create changes that then enable cha other changes that are really significant in terms of overall function. Uh, and these have been studied in different situations, and a couple of them may be commercially available. Uh, there's a yeast called Saccharomyces lulardi that was discovered in what is now Vietnam about 100 years ago and was developed into a probiotic. There's this extraordinary Russian or Russian and Ukrainian probiotic, which is a strain of Bacillus subtilis. It's Bacillus subtilis 7092. And that's an, this is an example of where strains matter. Bacillus subtilis is a soil-derived organism. It forms spores. It lives in the soil. If you eat raw food, you're going to get some Bacillus subtilis. And Bacillus subtilis and its relatives have multiple beneficial effects in the body, not because they set up shot and become part of your normal bacteria, the way that bifidobacterium and, uh, and related um, species do, but because they create an environment in which a healthy and productive microbiome can reconstitute itself when it's been disrupted. And of course, all of us have disrupted microbiomes. So uh, the Bacillus subtilis 7092 strain has a number of unique effects, and it creates the environment in which healthy organisms can grow. So, so that's that's my concept of Ale Alexander organisms. Gotcha. Is there anyone that's making a formulation to protect a given set of strains so that they'll only be released in the small intestine or the large intestine or in the stomach? Or, you know, um, how important and critical is placement of a probiotic? you know, inbound strains in the right area. So it's protected oh. from, again, stomach acid, but it's also protected maybe from competing uh, bacteria that would outcompete it if it, right. it, it's exposed too early. That's a very good point. And there are people working on that. Um, the first uh, danger to probiotics that you take is stomach acid. And so organisms that are able to get past 
stomach acid, they're more likely to be able to function as Alexander organisms. That's one of the strong points of the both the Saccharomyces luardi and especially the Bacillus subtilis, because Bacillus subtilis has, is a spore-forming organism. If you take it, it has a protective coating around it. You don't need to refrigerate it. It doesn't matter whether you take it with or without food. By the time it gets through this, after it gets through the stomach and somewhere in the small intestine, that spore gets digested and removed. And then the free living bacteria are able to start working. The 7092 allegedly is designed to have most of its impact in the large intestine and the colon. But uh, I can't say that I've reviewed enough of the, I haven't seen enough of the research in English to be certain of that. Well, um, for organisms that take up, you know, that are predominant in the colon, why not do a probiotic suppository? Well, you could do it that way. It's certainly more annoying than swallowing a pill. Right. But, if, but uh, that is, you know, like, I don't know. Hard to get to it would be large intestine and especially small intestine. But right. if something right. hangs out in the colon in predominance, then, you know, why not avoid all the stomach gas in the whole digestive system go bloop and uh, get well, it to that end? You know? Right. Well, well, the one issue there is just because you put something into the rectum with a suppository doesn't mean that it's going to travel retrograde throughout the colon because the whole direction of flow is from top to bottom. So if you put something in at the bottom, it's got a lot, of, a lot of work to do to try and move up. I see what you mean, yeah. Whereas if you take it orally, and it, especially if it's an organism uh, like the Bacillus subtilis 7092 that gets that has no problem getting past stomach acid and gets released somewhere in the small intestine where there's very little competition for it, by the time it gets down to the, it gets, it will travel through the whole colon. Hmm. Interesting. And also, I mean, this is gross, but the condition of the colon, especially the sigmoid colon, changes dramatically whether it's full or empty. Has anyone studied the bacterial dynamics when it's full versus when it's empty and how that changes as we go through the cycle of, you know, stool formation and then evacuation, et cetera? That has been looked at. Again, I don't think the question has been, has been approached exactly the way that you framed it, but there are changes in the microbiome that are related to time of day, independent of gut motility. Um, that is, uh, just as we have a diurnal cycle, there are bacteria that are sensitive to the to our body's diurnal rhythm, and they become more or less active at different times of day. And then it's also important to understand that there are two super communities of bacteria. They're the ones that are adherent to the large intestine to the lining cells, and there are those that appear in the stool. What appears in the stool is not necessarily representative of what's attached to the lining. Hmm. And because some of those cells that attach to the lining, they like it there. You know, they, they don't particularly want to get shed. So that's an example of the kinds of very complex dynamics that can occur. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I didn't realize that. Huh. Very interesting. Um, yeah, um, yeah, it it is very challenging, but over the past decade, it has started to. I've been so gratified to see the way in which this area that was kind of considered a little odd, and yeah. you know, out there when I started working with it, has really moved into mainstream medicine. Um, has anyone looked at um, the signaling that may be occurring? I'm looking at a hamburger. I'm going to eat it, and I start salivating. 
what do the bacteria in my mouth know from that? Um, or like start to eat a hamburger or whatever. Is it signaling my gut bacteria X, Y, Z is coming? You know, oh, is, there any, is, there any, is there any quick signaling that beats the progression of the food to let my body know what's coming? Yeah, they're, they're, the signaling occurs on a whole lot of levels. First of all, you start, like you smell something that smells good and you start feeling hungry. There are changes that occur in your brain that impact the function of your gut. And even, I mean, this was, this was studied over a hundred years ago, even before they knew anything about the gut microbiome. You know, you start to salivate the saliva changes the composition of the oral microbiome, but you also start to produce stomach acid when you, you know, your appetite is wet and you're preparing to eat. Well, the stomach acid kills a lot of organisms in the stomach. It also drips down into the small intestine where it stimulates the pancreas to start secreting juices. The acid that gets into the small intestine is also antibacterial. It's wiping out a lot of the local bacteria, but then there's a lot that makes room for the bacteria that are coming down from your mouth and from the food. And there's a widespread use of acid suppressive drugs because of problems like heartburn. And those drugs have a significant impact and not a favorable impact on the well, proton quality inhibitors okay right right and h2 blockers they really impact the composition of the gut microbiome and they increase the risk of foodborne infection and of c difficile c diff colitis acting on yeah so you know gastroenterologists tend i've said to patients of mine oh you can take this forever there's so side effects there's no problems uh, I mean, the research literature does not bear that out. Well, just just so you know, I don't know if this will be helpful to you, but uh, from what I've, I've experienced this directly, um, it's actually, you don't have enough stomach acid that can cause a lot of these gastrointestinal problems. So taking, uh, like one supplement I take is called HCL. It has betaine, pepsin, et cetera. It's a nice formulation, biotics, and that works much better than any anything to lower the acid. Usually it's the opposite is what I've found. Well, I have a lot of patients for whom that's the case, in whom acid suppression does not even help them symptomatically. They need more acid. Sometimes that'll come from the betaine hydrochloride. Sometimes it it will come from herbal products that stimulate acid secretion. But in those people who are acid sensitive, there are much better ways to control symptoms than with acid suppression. Yeah, I'm sure. I've I've put out an e-book call the heartburn and indigestion solution. It looked at yeah. that, I don't know, maybe a number of years ago. I don't remember how many. Well, that's good. Really calls that, that have worked. I mean, when I, when I see a patient who's on chronic acid suppression, my number one goal is to help them get off it. When yeah. I can su- succeed with that about 95% of the time. Well, that's really good. I mean, you know, and I'm not going to say most gastroenterologists are, you know, not helpful, but, uh, Again, you definitely seem to be a lot more open to different protocols and things than uh, some typical ones that I've spoken to. So that that's excellent for you. It's good. Well, you know, one of the problems with the physicians encounter is they're trained in a particular way of thinking about treating illness. And the, most of the drugs that we have sort of work like biological straitjackets. That is, they are designed to prevent some cellular function that's hyperactive from getting out of control. Hmm. Well, the, I mean, but the, the problem is that these cellular functions have a have a purpose. Right. And 
And so almost all of the side effects of drugs are directly related to what their therapeutic intent is. So if all the tools that you have in front of you are tools that suppress specific cell functions, you're going to be limited in what you're able to accomplish. That was one of the big frustrations for me 40 years ago when I started to look for other ways of trying to help people get better. Um, you know, like you, and so you're, you're treating someone for arthritis. Well, the drugs that you use to treat them for arthritis are, they're going to create gastrointestinal problems. They could cause ulcers. They may right. also cause kidney problems and you start, your blood pressure goes up. If you can find a nutritional approach to deal with arthritis, if someone has an ulcer or esophagitis or kidney problems, there's a really good chance or high blood pressure that all of those problems will improve with a nutritional approach. I, I, it's just, it's so fundamentally different in the way yep. it impacts the body. That was what was so exciting to me when I started seeing the results. Of yeah, that was fantastic. So why, why wouldn't you call yourself a functional gastroenterologist? Because it sounds like that's what you are. Oh, well, I'm, I am considered one of the founders of functional medicine. And, oh, wow. Um, that's awesome. You know, thank, and, thank God for you. I appreciate that, that, you, that you're one of the, the originators of it. That's really great. Yeah, some of the concepts that I started presenting 30 years ago became sort of foundational for the functional medicine approach. And, uh, but in terms of the world at large, I, I am a board-certified internist. I was trained, very well-trained in internal medicine. And I understand the way that doctors think and why they think that way. Hmm, gotcha. Okay, well, very good. Leo, how can people find you if you need to be found, you know, for, for clinical help? If they got to go to the doctor, gastroenterologist, or internist, where do you practice and work? You know, I don't know if you do telemedicine or people got to come in. Right. Well, these days I'm doing telemedicine only. I'm located in New York. I have very limited capacity for new patients, but I am interested in helping people with complex chronic problems, get the help that they need. Um, I have a website, drgalland.com. It's G A L L A N D. That's correct. Dr. D R G A L L A N D.com. And there are links there to various publications and presentations that I've given. On the landing page, there's an article called Long COVID Prevention and Treatment. And for the past three years, a lot of my focus has been on helping people understand and overcome the challenges of the pandemic. And even though the, the pandemic may be over, but endemic COVID is quite dangerous and long COVID may be the major public health impact of the endemic COVID. Okay, well, very good. Leo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Okay, well, great. Great to talk with you. Remember, before you go, You've got to check out treehouse.com. That's T-R-E, only one E, T-R-E-H-O-U-S-E dot com. They offer an array of premium legal THC products, including gummies, vapes, pre-rolls, and more. And they're all delivered right to your doorstep. With unique blends of carefully selected cannabinoids, all rigorously lab tested to ensure quality and consistency, Treehouse products give you the buzz you simply can't get anywhere else. Head over to treehouse.com. That's T-R-E. H-O-U-S-E dot com. Remember, there's one E, not two. And enjoy 30% off your order and get Acapulco Gold HHC pre-rolls when you use the coupon code GENIUS at checkout. Hurry because the offer expires August 31st, 2023. If you like this podcast, 
please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.